Far be it from me to get into the heads of the compilers of the lectionary, but the effect of today's selections, I think, is to inspire a few statistically probable kinds of sermons. There's the one that extols the virtues of marriage, possibly with some sage marriage advice mixed in. There's the one that decries the casualness of marriage and the commonness of divorce, maybe with a side helping of shaming those who are divorced, especially women. That's about the last thing we need more of this week, but I'm still going to circle back on the subject. And in more recent years, we might also hear the interpretation that this is the passage of scripture that proves that Jesus is not on board with same-sex marriage, what with Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and so forth. Being on the cusp of my fifth wedding anniversary puts me in a frame of mind to walk through door number one, extolling the virtues of marriage. But before I go there, let's take a quick second to talk about same-sex marriage. A common critique of our church's favorable view on the subject is that we haven't done the theology or that the church has succumbed to cultural Erastianism, which I heard during our summer vacation in the words of a priest who thought that a lengthy lecture comparing the contemporary cultural status of the Church of England to a 16th century heresy was precisely what cruise ship passengers attending a Sunday evening Eucharist had signed up for. <laughs> but I digress. We have done the theology. In the first two chapters of Genesis, there are two separate accounts of creation that each convey complementary truths about God's intention for the world. Jesus refers to both of them in the passage of Mark that we hear today. In the first account, the creation of humankind, God creates humans, male and female, each equally in the image of God. This tells us that equality of men and women is what is intended from the beginning of creation and we can include in that equality of the partners in marriage, whatever the gender configuration. In the second account, the source of the bit of Genesis we heard this morning, the beginning of the sequence of events that leads to Eve's creation from Adam's own flesh is God's tender observation that it is not good for the man to be alone. The problem God is solving in the creation of Eve is not the problem of human reproduction, but the despair of loneliness. Eve is the remedy for Adam's loneliness, and I hasten to add, she is also her own person. Opposite sex desire is statistically most common and is indeed necessary for procreation. But if we trust that our individual sexualities are gifts from God, then same-sex pairings are no less blessed. Okay, I'm preaching to the choir here. Back to door number one, extolling the virtues of marriage with sage advice on how to make it work. For this topic, I consulted one of the great fathers of the early church, St. Jerome, who spent many years during the fourth century as a hermit in the Egyptian desert, which he seems to uh, have believed uniquely qualified him as an expert on the relative merits of marriage and virginity. <laughs> in his treatise against Helvidius, where he argues stridently that the, that the virginity of the Blessed Mother was not limited to the time before Jesus' birth, but was in fact perpetual. 
he describes the virtues of the institution of marriage like this. The prattling of infants, the noisy clamoring of the whole household, the clinging of children to the neck, the computing expenses, the preparing of budgets. Wait, what? Oh, there's more. The pounding of meats by a busy band of cooks, the chattering of a crowd of women weavers, and in the meantime, you're told your beloved has come home with friends. Is the couch arranged? Are the floors swept? Are the drinking bowls in order? Tell me, I ask you, where is there any opportunity to think of God in all this? <clears throat> hey guys, new idea. Do you mind if we just shift gears and talk about the apocalypse instead? I'm serious, but bear with me. This is going to take a minute. The book of Judges shows up only once in the three-year Sunday lectionary. But if you read the daily office, practically the whole thing will appear in the summer of every even-numbered year. It was in one such year that I first made the acquaintance of one of the judges of Israel called Jephthah. Jephthah took Israel to war against some of the inhabitants of the land. Before one such battle, Jephthah vowed to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Jephthah and his armies prevail, and when he returns home, he is immediately greeted by his daughter, his only child, who comes out of the door of his house dancing. Jephthah says to her, I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break, and he kills her. I was shocked when I first encountered this story. And in the time since, it's become a minor obsession. I can't tell you how many times I've scoured commentaries trying to understand the hidden meaning of this text, which itself is curiously neutral on the events. Believe me when I tell you that the author of Judges doesn't hold back from calling people wicked, but Jephthah receives no judgment, positive or negative. Now, if you look at the commentaries, the most common explanation treats the story as a sort of fable, the moral of which is, don't make stupid vows because you'll have to keep them no matter what. More sophisticated treatments focus on the tragedy of Jephthah, who will have no descendants, because he sacrificed his only daughter. But they still evade the moral question of whether Jephthah was right to keep the vow. It was only when I read Robert Bowling's commentary in the Anchor Bible series two weeks ago that I got somewhere. He concludes his discussion of Jephthah by saying he was an exemplary judge. Exemplary, as in an example to be followed. And so I finally understood. There is no hidden meaning in this story. It's not mysterious at all. It tells the facts of an event where a father murders his daughter. But the story is a mirror that reveals something about the hearts of its readers and commentators. That we will come up with any justification to excuse the behavior, however horrifying, of any man so long as that man's actions in general line up with our own self-interest. 
Jephthah defeats the Ammonites, so the murder of his daughter is a family matter. I'll let you come up with your own contemporary examples. I wasted hours on the commentaries about Jephthah and the burnt offering of his daughter, when I should have focused on just one that matters. In Psalm 51, had you desired it, I would have offered sacrifice, but you take no delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God is a troubled spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, Jephthah, you idiot. You should have broken your stupid vow. Which brings us back to the apocalypse. When you're reading the Old Testament, it's important to remember that after the point where our Genesis reading left off today, we've got about six verses left until sin worms its way into the hearts of Adam and Eve. In the subsequent dozens of books covering thousands of years, we will have the history, poetry, and prophecy of relationship between God and creation with sin as the constant interloper. In other words, when the Old Testament is describing events that happened, sin is part of the story. When Jesus answers the Pharisees' question about divorce, something different is happening. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God near. In appealing to Genesis, Jesus reaches back before the fall to where God's original intent for marriage was revealed, for it to be lifelong and faithful and characterized by such intimacy that two join into a single flesh. That is the design of marriage crafted for Eden, and as close as some marriages may come to resembling that ideal, at least some of the time, we are all cut off from its full flower by the cherubim with flaming sword stationed at Eden's gate. Now the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was supposed to have fixed all that. You can see that in the great icon of the resurrection, where Jesus drags Adam and Eve from their tombs. Or more viscerally, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, there, beneath the part of the church where tradition uh, locates the site of the crucifixion, there's a chapel before a crevice in the rock where Christ's blood was surmised by some to have trickled down to where Adam's body rested in wait, for Jesus to descend to the dead to undo the curse of mortality that he and Eve had wrought. But hang on, mortality is still a thing, we die. Sin is still a thing, you don't need to look far to see that. And it didn't take the early church long to see that there was a tension between the victory over sin and death already being won, yet the fulfillment of that victory coming in the future. Writing to the Corinthians, Paul says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. That summarizes a concept theologians have called the already not yet, or the time between. That is, the intervening period between Christ's resurrection and ascension and the fulfillment of God's plan for creation at his coming again on the last day. In other words, right now. 
We continue to live in a time when even though the victory is assured, the Lord of hosts continues to battle the forces of darkness that are still among us. And to paraphrase Dostoevsky with a hat tip to Fleming Rutledge, the battlefield is the human heart. That means that even though we can recognize the way Jesus describes marriage as a lifelong, indissoluble, physical and spiritual bond between two people, as what God intends, we also know that the kingdom of God, while near, is not quite here, and we're not going to get there under our own power. We still have to take Jesus seriously. The vows we make to one another before God have to mean more than the empty promises of slick salespeople or political ads. So we're fortunate that marriage comes with many sub-vows, so even if we're not firing on all cylinders on all the vows all the time, we can at least do well enough to keep the main one intact with God's help. But in this already not yet, we also know that things go badly wrong, that there are breaches of trust that can't be healed, or it's the right promise, wrong time, or wrong person, or the wrong promise altogether. In the kingdom of God, there is no coercion, no betrayal, no forced marriages, no Vegas weddings. But here, there are. And as we stand today outside the gates of Eden and the new Jerusalem both, we work with the tools we have which sometimes means walking apart. To get super specific on what the Episcopal Church teaches about divorce, when you go home, look up Title I, Canon 9 in the Constitution and Canons. I know you all have copies. But the TLDR is that when a priest becomes aware of trouble in a marriage, her first job is to ensure the emotional and physical safety of the spouses before making any attempt to encourage reconciliation, that the legitimacy of children is never in question, and that in the event of divorce, former spouses have a continuing duty of concern for the well-being of one another and their children. As for the virtues of marriage, St. Jerome, not a fan. Truth be told, the man was obsessed with virginity in a way that was a bit extra, if not outright creepy, Writing to Eustochium, a disciple whose mother had pledged her as a perpetual virgin, thanks mom, the nicest thing he could say about marriage was, I praise wedlock, I praise marriage, but it is only because the children they produce are virgins. Yeah. But let's return to his list of complaints. The flip side of prattling infants, he bemoans, was for me being bossed around this summer by a four-year-old girl with stuffed dinosaurs she had named Frank and Brendan. <laughs> the flip side of managing household budgets is the thoughtful joint stewardship of God's generosity. The flip side of the crowd of chattering weavers, actually, I'm not really sure what that's about. Matching placemats, maybe, I'm not, whatever. The flip side of a spouse who brings friends home is having friends who love you to bring. Where is there anywhere to think of God in all this, Jerome asks. I ask you, where isn't there? The very best version of a marriage that we will see in this age is one where ultimately death severs the bond leaving one spouse to carry the grief that is the echo of love.
Our certainties are uncertain, friends, except for this one, that Jesus Christ, the pioneer of our salvation, has gone before us through the gate through which we all must one day go. I don't know what we shall become in the future after this time between, but here and now, we are God's children. And whether at the hour of death or in the age to come, whichever gets here first, when we see the one who will judge our frailties and probe our hearts, we will find a friend and not a stranger. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.